one way of telling a story is once upon a time there were characters blah 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 and then this happened and then that happened and then either they all died or they all lived happily ever after but another way of telling a story which i hope we are doing effectively is to raise questions through the medium of characters and storytelling and have the audience walk away with something more than they had presumed before build a bridge to empathy by raising questions hi welcome to speaking of indian arts the mahabharata series hosted by navatman In this series we go behind the scenes with the Navatman team as they research, write, compose, choreograph, style and bring to life a groundbreaking multi-year production of the largest epic in the world, the Mahabharata. My name is Anjali and I'll be your host for this conversation. To overcome cultural bias, we must understand and empathize with others through cultural works of art. To embolden cultural pride, we must relive stories of our heritage with new perspectives and through new mediums. To foster cultural respect, we must link arms with those who will join us in the journey forward. These are some of the sentiments that describe the intention and purpose of Navatman's Mahabharata project. Now you might ask, how are these noble endeavors translating into action? How does art steeped in ancient history and culture cultivate empathy in the modern world? To find out, let's talk to Lavanya, one of the mastermind storytellers who is immersed in the Mahabharata research and is leading one of the most complex and essential elements of the project, writing the script. Hi, I'm Lavanya. I have been with Navatman since 2014. I joined first as a Bharatanatyam student and then um in 2019 I auditioned for the Mahabharata part 1 on stage. I also um volunteered to help with writing it. Um and that's how I became part of the script writing team for the Mahabharata. So what exactly is your role as the script writer? Like I mean obviously writing the script but like what do you what do you do? What does a lead script writer do? Okay. So the writing team sits down to discuss the scene breakdown. You know, what is the overarching story that we're trying to tell? Uh part of that is literally translating the plot into dialogue um dance and music. but i think a much more important part of that uh is why we are trying to say it like we are what is the purpose of each scene what are the themes that are a constant undercurrent through the story we're trying to tell and why is it important so when we started with this in 2019 you know we read a few versions of the mahabharata there is one by ramesh menon which is a bit more dramatic um there's one by uh, km ganguly which is a bit more literal and reads like a translation um from the sanskrit 
and um, you know there was one uh, collection of multiple volumes which included the Sanskrit verses as well as their translation in English by Emendat. These are to name a few um, the versions that we read starting off. Now you know um, as we speak to the academic advisors, we are literally exploring many Mahabharatas, as in, you know, there's the critical edition with, it, with its own regional flares and flavors. And then all the um, versions we've read, ones that have been fictionalized, versions we watched, like, you know, the really popular series on Doordarshan from the 90s, the five and a half hour made for TV play by Peter Brook from the 80s. I remember reading that that play in real life went on for eight or nine hours and all nighter like it was meant to. Yeah. Wow. So you're looking across all these different retellings and recountings of the Mahabharata for the background research and to understand the story and consulting with the academic advisors. How do you decide which scenes or stories or excerpts to include in this Navathman production and which ones to leave out? I mean, it's such a massive, uh, I mean, epic, right? The largest epic in the world. <laughs> so uh, getting your head around the entire story in itself is a challenge, but then I can't even imagine how you go about deciding what to include and what to exclude. Um, we read as much as we could at the beginning. And then we set the overall structure of the project, what to leave out, what to include. Um, and then you start to nuance, right? When you sit down to discuss each scene, you start with, okay, why does this scene exist? What are we trying to convey? What is the objective overall, right? That um, a viewer will walk away after watching the scene but also what will they walk away with for each character that is in the scene. I'll give you an example. There's a scene that everyone knows and, you know, are very familiar with, which is Draupadi Swayambara. And Karna goes to attempt the challenge and then Draupadi is supposed to have yelled, I will not marry a Sutaputra. A Sutaputra is the son of a Sutta. A Sutta is a supposedly lower caste in the social hierarchy of that time. So Karna's entire life is defined by this attribute that he had no control over, where just because people perceived he comes from a community of suttas. He's kept out of opportunities where his heart and his merit warrant to take him, which frustrates Karna. And then, of course, Duryodhana comes up to defend him. Um, and it also plays into themes of that setting where the king's um, and royalty that have come to participate in the challenge are arguing whether it is only royals that can participate. Who's eligible and who's not? But isn't it supposed to be based on merit? 
And ultimately, isn't it Draupadi's choice anyway? So why does it matter who participates? Interestingly, um, soon after Arjuna, who is disguised as a Brahmana, wants to take part as well, he raises his hand. Um, and this escalates the anger and aggravation with people um, taking sides and lines are drawn. And, you know, we get to the point of... This is turning violent and people's lives are at risk. But if you go by other versions of the Mahabharata, notably the critical edition, Draupadi never said, I will not marry a Sutaputra. Karna tried and failed just like anybody else. So this has huge implications for how we think about Draupadi. And, you know, where Karna and Arjuna are constantly facing off, you know, with skills at par and considered the main rivals for each other in archery it sets up some delicious rivalry down the line so where do you draw the line for yourselves like how do you put a stake in the ground about like okay this is the interpretation we're going to go with you said that you think about the intention of the scene the purpose which you want people to walk away with what are some of the things that you want people to walk away with that create the framework for deciding this is how we're going to present it it again goes back to why are we telling the story one the elements of the story are not special to olden times or fantasy times things like discrimination privilege female voice being either completely squashed or finding its way out or working um, in the background to material effect all of these things are relevant to us today. And that's one of the best things about, you know, the project and the Mahabharata itself is how relevant it stands to everything we go through day to day. And, you know, whether it's moral questions or conduct questions or righteousness questions, the philosophy of life um, that we think through here and now. And in choosing to tell the story from New York City through Navatman, we are adding the female um, and largely immigrant perspective to it. We get to put our stake in the ground and add our voice to it now. You're not really retelling a story. You're kind of recreating a story. It's like bringing it to life all over again. It's not bringing a relic into the modern day and putting it in like a glass case in a museum so we can all look at it. It's embodying it and living it and seeing it kind of flourish or grow in the context of Manhattan, you know, New York City in 2021. Can you talk us through the script writing? process. You, you said that you do a lot of research, uh, you consult with the experts, you have a lot of this discussion, and, and it sounds like an evolutionary discussion. You're constantly learning and relearning about the characters. Then how do you translate this onto paper? Like, how do you sketch out a scene on, on paper? And specifically, I'm curious about how visual do you make this? Because obviously, you're not only writing the script for the language sake, but now the script is going to be the backbone of the film. It is very much an iterative process. We know overall what a scene needs to look like and what needs to happen in that scene. So we write it down in dialogue format. 
and then review that by challenging each other on oh why is she saying this would she really say it what would trigger a specific direction um or stance for that character and then it's not just about each character's path right it's also about grander themes like dharma and karma every character has their own interpretation of dharma and then we do the you know there's the actual read through with the cast members and it's not meant to be a read exactly what's on paper you know if a cast member feels like something needs to be said a little bit differently because they've been thinking about the character as well they will improvise and you know a lot of changes come out when you hear characters interact with each other um using that language and using their take on it um so it is a constant process it is an evolving process and i would say there are things that change right up to the moment you walk on stage or walk on set right up until the last minute um and the great thing is you know part of the rehearsal includes philosophical discussions we sit down we dissect the characters who they are or who we think they are really explore the character in terms of language in terms of stance in terms of movement and then juxtapose them against other characters in terms of voice even let's take satyavati as an example um you know she started out as a fisherwoman and then she became a queen and then her husband died her sons died she was left in charge whether she wanted to or not so how would she have moved when she was younger she was ferrying people across the river on a daily basis so she had to be strong and assertive and then how much of this would change or remain the same many many decades later when she's a queen who's worried about the future of the kingdom because there's no heir how would she sound how would satyavati sound different from kunti and how would it be different with draupadi all this you know this this holistic perspective really helped make it easier to write the characters as well it's funny and i never expected it but uh you go into this meditation to embody the character think about the character um and to really prepare mentally um for a scene or for rehearsal um it becomes easier to write the character you are understanding this person from so many different sides angles perspectives to the point where you can use that knowledge of the person or understanding as like the thread through everything from sound to music to movement to spoken language to you know body language to voice technique and in that way we're bringing these characters really to life fully so that the audience can also experience that level of connection and empathy yes with so much research in so many forms you've clearly indulged in this whole treasure trove of stories and backstories that explain so many of the dynamics and actions that happen in the mahabharata what has maybe surprised you about some of the stories in or the backstories in the mahabharata are there any examples that really sort of shocked you or 
changed your view on something drastically? One thing I was both surprised and amused by was just the nature of the backstories that I frequently encountered in reading through the text. So we know that the Mahabharata has a very layered narrative structure, right? It's not a story that progresses chronologically beginning to end. You're referring to scenes much, much later, um, situations that happened much, much before. You're jumping back and forth in time. Um, one thing I struggled with, I think, was how these backstories played into the choices that the character makes in a fate versus free will kind of way. Um, let's take Bhishma as an example. So the origin of Ganga and Shantanu is not even Ganga and Shantanu. So Ganga and Mahabhisha used to be in love very much in the celestial realm, back when kings could travel to celestial realms, um, except they were cursed and eventually Mahabhisha um, was born again as Shantanu, where they managed to find each other and fall in love again. We all know how it started with their children when Ganga drowned baby after baby after baby, and Shantanu was highly disturbed by this. Now, the backstory of these babies is that they were Vasus in another time and place who had stolen Nandini, a very important cow for which they were punished literally to be born as people. So they went to Ganga for some relief to say, we don't want to suffer in this human life all that much. Please, um, you know, give us relief. We will only be born to you. Please relieve us as soon as possible. And so she promises them, you know, I'm not going to let you spend even an entire year in human form. I will free you. So, yes, the seven babies um, that Ganga has drowned have actually found relief in being back to their Vasu selves. Um, but the eighth one is the one that has actually done the deed, the one that stole, stole the cow. So his punishment is meant to be longer. So the story goes that this eighth child will lead a longer human life. But because he has all that amazing celestial Vasu energy in him, he is going to be this amazing human being with all these awesome qualities as well. But then I struggled with, you know, Bhishma has made these intense choices taken on these awful awesome completely intense oaths did he mean to or was it just his backstory playing out i went back and forth and back and forth with this but consulting sahi um, and through our debates and discussions on this i can see that bhishma as a person had no idea about any of this. He would not have known what was in store for him before, after, or in between. So the choices he made are the choices he made. What, how we understand him as a person because of those choices still stands valid. Another amusing example is 
what seems like an attempt to rationalize polyandry. So, you know, Draupadi ends up marrying all five of the Pandavas. And Kunti, the Pandavas, Krishna, Drupada, Drishtadyumna, um, they're all arguing back and forth on whether this should be done or not. So Drupada, who is Draupadi's father, goes, whoever heard of a woman marrying multiple men? We know a man can have several wives, but it cannot be the other way around. What will society think of my daughter? But Kunti goes, well, I did tell them to share whatever they brought back. I cannot take my word back. Or, you know, I will be made into a liar. So help me out. Help out my moral quandary. So while everyone is arguing whether Draupadi should marry all the Pandavas or not, Vyasa steps in to say, actually, in another life, she had prayed to Lord Shiva for a capable husband, but then she prayed five times. So Shiva granted her five husbands. Yeah. Um, so that feels like, you know, an attempt at rationalizing something scandalous, which is amusing. But I like to think that Draupadi was assertive. She knew what she wanted and she consented to this. And that's probably an example of something that would come out more honestly or clearly in a production told by, you know, independent, strong women, you know, you guys, uh, as opposed to being told from that kind of male perspective, like Vyasa offers in the story itself of kind of showing her not as the agent of the decision, but as like someone that this is happening to because of some previous prophecy. Yes. Um, another, well, revelation of sorts was, um, so there is this magical palace that the Pandavas and Draupadi are in where Duryodhana visits along with a number of other people for this huge sacrificial ceremony, which is very successful. So Duryodhana is already seething in jealousy at how much the Pandavas have built out of like barren, rocky wasteland that they were granted by the king. Um, on top of that, this palace is indeed magical. He steps across a part of the floor thinking it's glass, but it's actually water. And he is humiliated. The Pandavas are laughing at um, his missteps. At another part of the floor, he suspects this might be water because of what happened last time. Um, and he's dripping wet. So he carefully lifts up his clothes and tries to gingerly step into it to test out the level except it's not it's just floor so again he gets laughed at so um these instances happen and the pandavas laugh at him yes he's thoroughly humiliated and insulted and then he takes this back with him to conspire with shakuni and call them to the game of dice where subsequently Draupadi is disrobed and violated. Now, a lot of popular interpretations of the story 
have Draupadi specifically pointing and laughing at Duryodhana and insulting him, which, you know, a lot of people take to why she was singled out at the game of dice and so insulted so much, why she suffered so much more than the Pandavas. But this does not happen in the book. I was surprised and, you know, I did think a little bit about where that might have come from. Are we making attempts to rationalize misogyny? Did we feel the need to say, oh, she laughed at him and so this happened, this horrible thing? It may not sound as badass to say she was asking for it, but it is very much along those lines, right? Why do we feel the need to draw a straight line from where one person has made a choice to violate another person to what she may have done to invite it. I'll leave you with one last example um, that I just have to bring up is how many different people can be called Krishna. Hmm. Yes, because when we think Krishna, we're thinking the god with the flute and the peacock feather. But no, Krishna means dark skin. Not blue skin, dark skin. Draupadi has fiery black skin. She is also called Krishna. Vyasa, the original author, the OG author of the Mahabharata, also is extremely dark-skinned. He is also called Krishna. For me, that was really interesting because I am yet to see a single play or movie or series or snippet where Draupadi is portrayed with dark skin. You know, so it's interesting to me why and when her character was whitewashed in the way we think of her. And especially with Draupadi, it's not just an attribute. It's one of her defining attributes. It's one of the defining attributes for her beauty. Kings, and I'm quoting from the book when I say become like rutting animals when they glance upon her with, you know, beautiful dark skin and nails like burnished copper. In your whole journey with this epic, from being a part of the story in 2019 and the evolution through now and moving forward, what does participating in this project mean for you? So the Mahabharata, for me, has been something quintessential from my childhood. Every Sunday morning, I'd be glued to the TV to watch it. But it has always been a story of good guys versus bad guys with a little bit of magic thrown in through this effort and you know through looking at it in a whole new way my understanding and appreciation for the Mahabharata has become much much deeper it has become about complex human beings about how the road to hell can be paved with the best intentions about how when everyone is trying to do the right thing, colossally bad things can happen, you know, can lead to colossally terrible consequences. And that's very, very 
parallel to the world as I know it today. I'm not going to say that the Mahabharata gives me answers. It never preaches, right? I am not looking at it for life lessons. I'm looking at it for the questions that it raises and, you know, how there may be more than one side to anyone's story and how it is worth taking the time to consider there might be more than what you see or feel at a given time. Navatman is a performing arts organization that empowers individuals to nurture their personal evolution through interactions with the Indian classical arts, and that creates a home for the Indian classical performing arts in New York City. Navatman's Mahabharata production, which blends various arts, live theater, and film, is dedicated to portraying new interpretations of the ancient story illuminating subtle connections between gender, caste, and equality, forging next-generation artistic innovation, and representing cultural music and dance in the diaspora to cultivate empathy. Navatman and its Mahabharata project are entirely community-funded, so please donate and join us at www.navatman.org to sustain the Indian classical arts into the future. Uh...